The following podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. I like killing people because it's so much fun. It's more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. Back in the summer of 69, a series of letters written partially in code arrived at newspapers in the San Francisco area. They contained the chilling words you just heard and came from the twisted mind of the soon-to-be-notorious Zodiac Killer. The messages eventually comprised a combination of senseless murders and taunting public letters brimming with deadly threats, demented demands, and mysterious cryptograms. This case is intriguing to so many people a half century later because the identity of the man who wrote the messages and can be directly linked to at least five murders in the San Francisco area in the late 1960s still mystifies and eludes law enforcement officials, professional code breakers, and armchair criminologists around the world. But to best understand the words of the Zodiac in the summer of 1969, we have to go back to the year 1968 and explain why America was in such turmoil and why American citizens could be so easily frightened into believing that they were in grave danger of being hunted like wild game in the forest. Welcome back, everybody. Another exciting episode of True Crime on Easy Street. This is a series mm-hmm. beginner. Yes. Is that what you call this? Yeah, this is, uh, this is a, this series is a 101 course in uh, true crime. I can't wait. I'm, I'm so excited. Brought to you by this local team of experts. My name is Kelly Turner, and I'm not a doctor. And I'm Katie Givens, and I'm not a lawyer. My name is Scott Wright, and I'm a mediocre journalist. And it's a beautiful day outside. We're recording on a Sunday. We normally record on a Monday. Are we going to get into that? But the weekend has been beautiful, and I'm sipping on some iced tea. We're going to throw Katie under the bus or not? Yeah, this was um, my bad, guys. Yeah. We weren't supposed to be here today, but she remembered that she had an appointment tomorrow out of town. And so there was a panic at, what, noonish? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Katie remembered that but, she wasn't going to be here tomorrow. So now we're here today. Well, we're experts and professionals, so we can throw it yeah. together hey, like that. Throw me a curveball, and I will knock it into the parking lot. That's what we do here, right? <laughs> exactly. Okay, it's shout-out time. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to shout-out to you, Jacob Graves. Ugh, I had a wonderful... Let's get that out of the way. I had a wonderful conversation with him yesterday, over the weekend. I thought you said it was day. A, Kind of a pill about it. No, 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 no. Okay. No, we we love Jacob. Jacob's entire family's had a shout out on this podcast, except for him. Sounds like he was a pill about it. Well, here's the deal. I didn't realize that Jacob listened to the podcast. I He's thought, not our demographic. I, th- I sort of had bunched him into the category with KT, my husband, who does not listen. Yeah, what a fan. <laughs> and so I just naturally... There's the two of them are so close because uh, Jake and KT are best friends, right? So the two Jacob and KT are so close. I just automatically assume they're one and the same on a lot of things. Just because you assume the worst about your husband doesn't mean that you should assume <laughs> the worst about Jacob Graves. That's absolutely correct, I Scott. Know. And and I I found out that Jacob has listened to every episode and 
uh, we are going to have Jacob on soon. Okay, cool. And he's got a case ready for us. Does he? He does. He does now. <laughs> he, he's Yeah, he just headed to the library if he's listening mm-hmm. to this. But thank you for being a listener, Jacob. I was so surprised. I don't know why I was surprised by that, but I, just, I was. Yeah. But that's- I am too. I love that. Yeah. So thank you very much. Uh, guys- what are you doing with this beautiful weather this weekend? I'm sitting in an office building. <laughs> yeah. Recording a podcast. Yeah. What have you been doing? Uh, well, earlier today, I was at another restaurant that has an outdoor area. Okay. And I uh, hung out there and had a uh, shrimp cocktail for lunch. Okay. And uh, a couple of uh, liquid beverages. Mm-hmm. So if this all goes off the rails, you can blame the folks at, you can blame Willie at Dex and Docks. Okay. You got a little sun on your face. Uh, that's Katie probably not sun sunshine. But I, yeah, I sat out by the pool a little bit yesterday, literally a little bit, and read a book. And I was like, "Oh, I'm a little sunburnt." Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, it's. Oh, you know what? I rode with out. the I rode with the top down on my convertible yesterday. That must be where the yeah, sun came from. Sun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well. All right. Well, let's get right to it today, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to part one of the Zodiac. Yes. I'm very excited. I know you are. I've been driving you guys fucking nuts for a month uh, getting ready for this. And so here we are. Has it only been a month? Uh, Yep. Wow. Thanks. (laughs) For those of you who are counting, uh, Cooper Allen, that was one swear word. (gasps) That's all I get today? From Mr. Scott. Sorry, Already. He's already. Cooper just got his shout out. And I will be hearing from his mother uh, on Wednesday afternoon, probably Mm -hmm. via text message. And she won't be happy about it. Swell. So um, we're going to talk about the Zodiac Killer. And what I realized uh, quickly, I I talked to uh, Katie's husband, Shane, over the weekend. And he said, you know, I've heard about the Zodiac Killer, but I don't really remember very many of the specifics. Of course, like all three of us, it happened before we were born. This all happened in 1968, or at least it began in 1968. Mm -hmm. So none of us were alive back then. So it it all kind of runs together in a lot of people's heads. California serial killers, late 80s. Was that about the same time as Manson? Yes. But that's all people really remember anymore about the Zodiac Killer. So we're, gonna, we're not going to get off into the crazy conspiracy theories. Plenty of them exist out there. What I would like for this podcast to be when we get finished with this three-part series is for people who are aficionados of this true crime series to listen to us and go, you know what? For a first-time effort, these guys did a pretty good job. That's what we're aiming for is to just kind of let people know who've heard the name, but don't really know what's going on or don't remember or never heard the details to begin with. Okay. Well, let's get right to it. Let's set the table. Just a quick snapshot of what was going on during this time. Katie, you going to tell us about some movies and some uh, uh, music that was big back then? Some movies in 1968 or 2001, A Space Odyssey, Night of the Living Dead, Planet of the Apes, Once Upon a Time in the West. And Bullet. Remember, you guys seen the movie Bullet with Steve McQueen? There's that famous chase scene in the car through the streets of San Francisco. No, it no. came out in the. You, know, you should you should check it out because it will show you exactly what the city of San Francisco looked like when all of this was happening in the late '60s, early oh, '70s. Okay, it all happened in and around San Francisco. The gold, I mean the uh, the Zodiac Killers. So, uh, just it's a famous car chase scene. They're still trying okay. to replicate that car chase scene, and they haven't pulled it off yet. All right, music in 1968. Uh, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding. Mrs. Robinson by Simon and Garfunkel. Hey Jude by The Beatles. I heard it through the grapevine by Marvin Gaye. And then, uh, I mean, the Stones were big back then, right? And The Beatles and... Yeah. Jimi Hendrix. I mean, I loved All Along the Watchtower. That really, to me, that 
I I think 1968. Every time I hear that song, it just sounds like the the turmoil that was going on in the country. So that's kind of where everything was. And 68 was a crazy year in in the history of the country. It was just one of those years. It was like uh, it was like 1492 and 1776 and 1945. It was a year when everything changed. So if you want to, while you're listening to this, if you want to just turn that song on all along the watch. Yeah, play it underneath. Turn it on really low. Yeah, we have to pay for that. So we can't. Yeah, we can't do that. But you can. Exactly. All right. Good old Spotify. So what I decided to do, we had this really long set the table segment that we talked about, but I realized that there's a much more succinct and even better way to do it. Anybody who has ever studied American history has seen the five images that we're going to talk about just briefly before we get this show underway. So the first one is uh, back in February of 68. There was a summary execution on the streets of Saigon on February the 1st. And everybody has seen that image. It's an iconic image. The, the, photo, uh, the photographer from the uh, Associated Press named Eddie Adams captured the picture just as the bullet left the chamber. And we see somebody in his final split second on this earth. And it was a, it was a Viet Cong uh, soldier who earlier in the day had killed a lieutenant colonel, a South uh, Korean lieutenant colonel, and his wife and their six children and his 80-year-old mother. So he was summarily executed on the streets of Saigon, and that is one of the iconic images. You guys have that picture in your head of what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. On the uh, the plaid shirt? and Okay, so that's that's one of the images. And that's just how important newspapers were back then. And we're going to get to why newspapers are important when we start talking about ciphers and cryptograms and letters that the Zodiac sends to the San Francisco area newspapers, and that will make even more sense. So the next thing that happens in the iconic photograph category happens, unfortunately, in April when uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated on the walkway, on the second floor walkway of the uh, Lorraine Hotel in Memphis. And there's that iconic image of the other men on the walkway pointing all in the same direction where they think the bullet came from. And if you look closely at that photograph, you can see Martin Luther King laying on the ground at their feet. So another iconic image. And, you know, so we've, so far we've dealt with Vietnam and we've dealt with racial unrest and, and Kelly's going to tell us about when politics gets involved. So on June 5th, the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, the U.S. presidential candidate, uh, he was shot at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. He died from his injuries after being shot at age 42. And one of those iconic images from that night, there, there are a couple, but the one that, that jumped out to me, uh, there's a busboy who worked in the kitchen area where uh, Robert Kennedy had gone through the, the kitchen area to escape the crowds after announcing that he won the Democratic primary in California. And then he was shot. And he falls on the concrete floor. And at one point, this 17-year-old busboy, his name is Juan Romero, has Kennedy's head cradled in his lap. And that's just one of, another one of those iconic photos that reminds you of all of the craziness that was going on in 1968. And then another one is the, uh, the Black Power salutes at the 68 Olympics in Mexico City. Uh, the first and second, I'm sorry, the first and third place uh, American sprinters were on the podium, and when the national anthem began, they raised their arms in the Black Power salute. Another iconic image from that year. There's, there's your social unrest. And then finally, some good news from 1968. Uh, Apollo 8 left Cape Canaveral on December the 20th, 1968, and was the first ever spaceship to leave Earth orbit and go to the moon. And one of the iconic images that they captured via film uh, while they were orbiting the moon was Earthrise. And you've all seen it. It's been on the cover of Time Magazine and every newspaper that you've ever seen a million times in your life. 
but it was the first time that anybody had ever seen Earth quite that way. And Bill Anders, the astronaut who took the photo, said, you know, it was weird. We went all of that way to discover the moon. And what we realized was that we had discovered the Earth instead. Yeah, and then the anonymous telegram to NASA afterwards said, uh, thanks, you saved 1968. Exactly. And Anders' Anders' photo was on the front page of papers, you know, everywhere after the film developed. And basically that gets us to December of 1968 and the beginning of the Zodiac case. Yeah, and and, uh, irony of ironies, that was launched the day after our first case occurred, which is which is something Kelly's going to talk to us about, and it happened on December the 20th, 1968. So enter Betty Lou Jensen, a 16-year-old junior at Hogan High School. In the summer of 1968, she is going to fall in love with a boy, and he's a year older than her, and he goes to Vallejo High School, and his name is David Faraday. Mm-hmm. David and Betty Lou were perfect for each other. They were both great students, honor students. He's an Eagle Scout. They're popular. They're bright. They're talented. They have their whole lives ahead of them. And on Friday, December the 20th, 1968, which is the last day of school before their break, Betty Lou's parents are finally going to let her go on a date with David. This is her very first date. That's right. So she's going to be allowed to go to the school's Christmas concert with David. He's going to pick her up that night. He picks her up in the family's 1961 Rambler station wagon. The couple attended the concert, which ended at 10 p.m., but Betty Lou's curfew is at 11 p.m., so they have one hour. And, you know, teenagers, they're going to make the most out of this one hour, right? Yes. So David has a plan. So David is planning on giving Betty Lou his class ring within this one hour time span. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is going to signify that the couple is, quote, going steady. We know what that means, right? It means they're exclusive. Gotcha. Um, so since they were short on time, David is going to cut through Lake Herman Road. He's, he's wanting to get to the Blue Rock Springs Park, which is a popular teen hangout after hours, if you know what I mean. But uh, this cut through, it's very dark and it's very winding. And he finally just decides we're just going to pull over in a gravel area here on this road because it's taking too long to get to the park. Mm-hmm. I've got a lot I want to talk to her, Betty Lou about. Right. And so she's got curfews so. and she's got to be home. And this is her very first date and we can't be late. Try not to screw this one up. Let's not. So they decide to just pull over on Lake Herman Road. As I said, this cut through is very, very dark. You have to know this road. The locals know it and do travel on this road. But if you're not local, then you don't know this road and you certainly can't see where you're going or know how to maneuver it at night. So they pull over and at 11.15 p.m. on that night, Stella Borges leaves her house. She's going to go pick up her 13-year-old son at the movie theater mm-hmm. who lives nearby. So she's also going to take the Lake Herman Road cut through. She pulls up on a car. This car is a station wagon. The station wagon is still running. Stella then sees the body of a teenage boy lying on his back just outside the passenger side car door. She sees a teenage girl about 30 feet west of the car 
with blood pooling underneath her as she lay on her right side. Stella hurried down the road to get help, and she got the help of Captain Daniel Pitta of the Benicia Police Department, which is a, a nearby area. And remember, we're talking about 1968, so she had to physically go somewhere to get a phone mm-hmm. to call someone. Yeah. The captain arrives on the scene. He sees the two teenage victims. David has a single gunshot wound to the head just behind his left ear. And David was still alive at this time. He was breathing very shallowly. However, Betty Lou was dead. She had five gunshots in the back. Oh, bless. As the captain stayed by David's side, he realized that clutched in David's hand was his class ring. Mm. David died on the way to the hospital. The detectives discover that there's a total of 10 22 caliber shots that were fired in that area. There were bullet holes in the station wagon. So this is going to lead investigators to conclude that the two were ordered out of the vehicle by maybe some warning shots or somebody running up on them. Uh, these are the only, this is the only piece of evidence, the, the 22 caliber shots. But there is an eyewitness who says they saw a 1963 Chevrolet Impala. Now, they're going to say it's either white or light blue. Because remember, it's really dark on this road. And they're going to see this car traveling from Lake Herman Road toward Blue Rock Springs Park at about 1030 that night. Several road travelers see the station wagon and they report this to the detectives. They see the two teenagers in the vehicle alive and well and can report that up until around 11 o'clock that night. At one point in time, people recalled seeing that the seats were reclined and so that further led investigators to say that he walked up on them and shot at the car and ordered them out of the car. So they you know, lean their seats up. And then mm. once the shooting started, it seems like they tried to, to both run and flee and, yeah. get, and, and yeah. get away. And he shot him. No driver of a Chevrolet Impala, white or light blue, ever came forward. Suspicious. Mm-hmm. And that is the period on the end of the sentence of Betty Lou and David. All right. And so, so what happens is, the Solano County Sheriff's Department, which is where both Benicia and uh, Vallejo, another small community, smaller than a large community in Solano, uh, Solano, Solano County are located. We'll call it Solano for purposes of discussion. So they don't, there's nothing, there's no serial killer yet. All we've got is two teenagers shot on a deserted road. Nobody's thinking about any sort of serial killer situation because all we've got is two murdered teenagers so far. So the local police department, the Solano County Sheriff's Department, treats this as a uh, a revenge type of thing. They don't know how to approach this case yet. It's it's not what it's going to become. Well, and that's because there had been some issues with David and a, a local drug dealer. Yes. David had threatened to, I guess tell on the drug dealer yeah. for lack of a better word, report yeah. what was going on oh, yeah because he's know, don't forget yeah. he's on the wrestling team he's an eagle scout he's a fine upstanding young man and if he thinks somebody else is doing something underhanded or nefarious then he's the guy who's gonna squeal on them and so that's where the police focused on this mm-hmm. for months mm-hmm. and then the next thing that happens is we have to fast forward to july of 1969 and it is july the 4th and a 22 year old lady named darlene Farron 
she is a waitress at a restaurant called Terry's Waffle House in Vallejo. And she's very popular. All the boys like her. In fact, you can read some places where it sounds like she was fooling around on her husband, but we're not here to judge the the victim or shame the victim. There's no reason why this should have happened to her. But she was in a car with a guy named Mike Majo uh, on July the 4th, 1969. And they were friends. They had met at Terry's Waffle House and had gotten to know each other. And if you believe Mike Majo uh, years later, and he is one of the two survivors of Zodiac attacks, he says that they were... She was married, yes, but uh, she was 22 and I was 19, and she was going to get divorced, and we were going to get married and live happily ever after. So for whatever reason, they're in the car after midnight. It's now July the 5th, early morning hours, uh, and they have made it to Blue Rock Springs Park. That's where uh, Betty Lou and David were headed until they stopped mm-hmm. off at Lake Herman Road, mm-hmm. uh, and it's only about five miles away. Blue Rock Springs Park is, and it's a it's a private park. I'm sorry, it's a public park that is adjacent to a golf course. Uh, but they're parked in the parking lot there with the lights off and the radio on on July the fourth. Mike's driver. Uh, I'm sorry, he's the passenger in this car, so his passenger side window is down. Uh, he says later that he felt like they were being followed that evening, and he could never get a straight answer from Darlene about who it was that might be following them. And that is the course of plenty of speculation in the 50 years since this happened. And you can look that up yourself if you want on the internet. We're going to skip the salacious stuff and just stick to the facts. Um, but they're sitting in the parking lot. A couple of cars go through. Fireworks are thrown out of the windows. Teenagers playing pranks, right? But then a car col- uh, pulls up behind them and stops for a moment. And they can't really figure out. Neither one of them knows who it is, or at least Darlene won't say who it is. And that car pulls away. Mike is telling all of this later, after this is over. The car comes back in a few minutes, and a gentleman gets out of the car with what Mike says is a very powerful flashlight. It makes him think that it must be the police department. So he looks over at Darlene, and he says, hey, grab your license. The cops are going to check our driver's license. Mike turns back around to speak to this police officer out of his roll-down window, and immediately a 22, I'm sorry, a 9-millimeter Luger starts firing bullets. It was a 22 caliber at Lake Herman Road, right? Yes. With okay. And that's another thing about Zodiac. He, he kills in a different way every time. Mm-hmm. So this is a nine millimeter Luger and he starts firing shots. And the first one hits Mike in the cheek and rips out his tongue and breaks his jaw. And Mike immediately starts to shove with his feet on the dash of this little brown Corvair that they are in, a little two-door car. He's trying to shove himself into the backseat just to get out of the line of fire of these gunshots. And at that point, it seems like the assailant reaches inside and really focuses his aim on Darlene at that point and puts five bullets into Darlene's body and turns around and walks away towards his car. Well, Mike at that point is in excruciating pain and can't help it. He, he, he screams out in pain. The perpetrator comes back to the window, fires two more shots at Mike, two more shots at Darlene, and then gets in his car and pulls away. So this is both, both accounts here where... The female victims had more shots. Seemed to be the uh, they the seemed focus. to be the focus of the crime, yes, that, and then they the guys were collateral damage. That's almost the way that it seems, and we will, uh, you know, wait until part two, and you'll hear some more stories that that sound a lot like what we just talked about just now because it, it happens again. Um, but yeah, so that's that's kind of what happens, and then so uh, the police show up soon after because a. a 
a car full of teenagers pulls up and sees what's happening or what has happened because Darlene in her weakened state can still turn on the lights in the car. That's the only thing she can do. Mike is shouting to her, asking her if she's okay because he's worked his way out of the vehicle and he's propped up beside the right rear tire of this Corvair. Darlene is still inside, leaned over against the driver's side door. All that she can do, she can't say anything, she can't breathe, her lungs have been punctured, but she can work the lights and flash the lights. And that's when three teenagers notice a commotion and come over and the police get called. And that's at about 12.15 on July the 5th. How is he able to ask her if she's okay with no time? I don't imagine it was very audible or very uh, uh, clear, but you know, uh, he, w- he was trying to find out if she was okay. And when the teenagers arrived, the first thing that Mike did was say, would kind of point over his shoulder at her, mm-hmm. get a doc, mm-hmm. get a doc. Um, and so that's when the police arrived and the ambulance showed up. Unfortunately, Darlene uh, passed away in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Uh, but Mike was rushed into surgery. And a few days later, uh, or a few hours later, he was stabilized and was able to give sort of a, a vague description. It wasn't enough for a, uh, for a composite sketch, but it was, uh, it was five, eight, five, nine, chunky, but not fat, 190 to 200 pounds, white guy, blonde hair. Um, I saw him from the profile and then the gun started flashing. That's all I remember. But he did say blonde hair. Yes. And it, it, was, a, it was a short sleeve blue shirt, which led some people to speculate that maybe the guy was dressed as a police officer, but Mike couldn't confirm or deny that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, it was. I really just looked up and there was a light in my eye and then the gun started to go off and I didn't really get a very good look after that. Now, wasn't there some story, and and Mike may have spoke about this years later in some interviews, but wasn't there some speculation that the killer had made contact with Darlene prior to the crime? Yeah, there's there's a, I don't know how solid the conspiracy theory is, but in the month that I've been researching this, I've run across it several times. Because Darlene was a waitress at Terry's Waffle House, I've seen it called, um, you know, she, there were a lot of people in and out. Mm-hmm. And she was, you know, she's, she's a, I don't want to use the word flirty, but she's a friendly person and she's trying to make tips, I'm sure. So she ends up with a lot of folks who want to come and visit her and hang out while she's working there. And there is some speculation that, and there've been a few suspects through the years that have been tied to the neighborhood around where Terry's Waffle House was. And so the speculation is that maybe they were regular customers of hers who had a crush on her and followed her around. And one night decided if I can't have her, nobody can. Now is her husband blonde? Uh, he was not. He was immediately cleared in that uh, investigation because he was actually working at a bar or at a restaurant called Caesars. He was the head cook at a at a restaurant just down the street called Caesars, and he was on the job that night. So he was accounted for by yes, several multiple uh, multiple witnesses. Did he know about the relationship that she was having with with Mike? It it, it if you read the story about Darlene and Dean and the way that they uh, lived their lives together, it seems like, and they'd only gotten married in. January of 68. And this takes place in July um, of 69. So they've, they've been married for less than a year. Well, for a year and a half. And they've got a child, a young daughter. But Mike, they're both working at restaurants. I don't know. You can read where it almost reads like they were swingers. And it almost reads like in some places where he didn't have a clue. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I've, I've seen... Um, you know what? Did you see the same thing? Well, I've just seen some things where some people were saying that they thought they had an open marriage. Right. And um, But I had not seen that it everywhere, was, so I didn't know. It was, the, it was California in the late 60s, and times they were a-changing. 
So perhaps. I mean, perhaps. But for whatever reason, she was there with this 19-year-old boy who was not, 19-year-old man, who was not her husband. And that's, they were the two, you know, they were the two people who were the victims of, if you believe all of this, the Zodiac killer that night. And so at 12.15, the 911 call comes in and police rush over and start to to get uh, uh, Mike and Darlene headed towards the hospital and to scour the crime scene. And then at 12.45, there's a phone call to the Vallejo Police Department. The same lady who answered the 911 call 30 minutes earlier answers a call from a strange voice that she does not recognize. And you're going to hear that in just a moment. And that is, if there's a cliffhanger for the end of this episode, we have just gotten there. I want to report a double murder. If you will go one mile east on Columbus Parkway to the public park, you will find the kids in a brown car. They were shot with a 9mm Luger. I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. Okay, well, there is part one of what we think is going to be a three-part episode about the Zodiac. So we've, we've gotten you through the first two attacks mm-hmm. that the Zodiac committed. And we're just going to stick to the four cases that we can tie pretty succinctly to the Zodiac Killer. So there'll be two more next week. And then Katie's really going to be able to shine in our third part episode because she's going to get into the legal stuff and the ciphers and the cryptograms and all of this other stuff that makes up this Zodiac case. But we don't want to give too much away. And I can feel Kelly's eyes rolling when I say that, because if there's anybody who gives shit away too soon, it's me. So um, That is correct. But we're kind of just Zodiac 101-ing over here. Exactly. So we just want to give you the facts. If you want to go dig deeper and find some other stuff, that's fine. But in the meantime, uh, like, share, and subscribe. Yes. Give us a five-star review. Keep those four-star reviews to yourself. If you give us a five-star review, make sure that you comment so we know who it is. Yeah, so we can give you a shout-out like we did with uh, Jacob finally earlier today. Well, (laughs) if Jacob had left us a review with a nice comment, he would have got a shout-out before now, Jacob. Lazy college boy. Uh He's He's, not anymore. Uh, Lazy college grad. How about that? <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> I was lazy when I was his age, but you know, you can still get away with it for a little while. But he's about to have to go to work, I think. So he'll be uh, he'll be pulling on the same end of the rope with the rest of humanity before you know it. <laughs> Jacob may come and get you after yeah, this one. Uh-huh. Jacob Scott said that, not me. So next week, another exciting episode of True Crime on Easy Street. Is that it? Is there anything we've forgotten? Nope. I think that's it. All right, guys. Good night, everybody.